Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16 with me for a few minutes tonight. Acts chapter 16. This is one of the hardest sermons to preach because of all the damage Arminians have done to the Word of God. So that some of us and some of you can only hear a, word, hear a verse and think one thought. The decisional salvation of Billy Graham, D.L. Moody, Charles Finney, and others who have created and concocted a doctrine of salvation that was unknown of before they came along. Charles Finney was a lawyer in outstate New York, and he first promoted a mourner's bench at the front of assemblies where sinners could come forward and get born again. We do not believe anything like that. We believe that a man is born again first. Then he has within him a desire to hear the word of God. And when the gospel is preached to him, he then believes it. Regeneration comes before conversion. Regeneration comes before faith. And we believe that we're predestinarian Baptists because we're Baptists that believe the doctrines of election and predestination as they are plainly taught in the Bible. The all-disposing will of salvation is not your will. It's the will of God. He said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. It's all wrapped up in the will of God. Now, we believe that. But we are going to treat the word of God fairly. Because all error comes by neglecting some portion of the word of God and not reconciling it all to fit together to to arrive at God's systematic truth. If you just pick the verses you like on some subject and ignore the others, like the Bible study I gave you on Wednesday evening, it ends up being hilarious, doesn't it? Amen. And you know, I gave you that study on Wednesday evening to lay a foundation for what we want to do right now. We want to read the Word of God. We want to put these verses in the proper context of the rest of Scripture. In Acts chapter 16, the Apostle Paul has taken away the livelihood of some men who had a devil-possessed damsel that foretold the future once in a while. Damsels with devils only foretell the future sometimes. Prophets of God foretell the future and never make a mistake. And there's a big difference between Elijah and Gene Dixon. There's a bigger difference right now because there's a great gulf separating the two of them. She's in hell and Elijah's in heaven. That Roman Catholic superstitious sorcerer that I remember as a boy reading of her forecast of John F. Kennedy's assassination in Dallas, Texas. And so the whole world went rushing after Gene Dixon, but enough of that. We want to interpret the Word of God, and we have Paul and Silas in prison in Philippi of Macedonia because they took away the means of livelihood of some of these men who owned the damsel. And here's what we read in three verses. Acts 16, beginning at verse 29. You know about the earthquake. I've dealt with it in the last couple of weeks as we've been preparing to study the book of Philippians. Acts 16, verse 29. The jailer called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, 
What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. Amen. This is the Word of God, as much as Ephesians 1, as much as Romans 9, and we must take it all together and have it fit together in a way that we would honor God, lest we depart from the words of the living God. And we do not want to do that. It is a difficult subject to teach for several reasons. The Arminians have abused the Bible by picking sound bites wherever they wanted them. See, they would grab this sound bite, What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They take the two verses out of the context of the rest of the Bible and teach a doctrine that your decision, your faith, your inviting Jesus into your heart, or you accepting Jesus as your Savior, one moment in time, changes your standing with God. So that one moment you were not saved, you were on your way to hell, the next moment, from this momentary decision, you've been altered, a new name has been written down in glory in the book of life, Heaven now has a larger population than God had planned for it earlier because you did something to affect salvation in a decision. And they'll take it from a passage like that. But see, we've got to read this passage in the light of the rest of Scripture. I've already said one thing tonight. No one believes in the Lord Jesus Christ without being born again first. And so when this man came in and Paul and Silas said to him, Believe. He couldn't have believed unless he had already been born again. Amen. What happens when you're born again? You're a man that has been born once and you have flesh. That's all you have is a sin nature. John 3, 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. You cannot take a man in the flesh and get him to do anything in the flesh to please God in order to be born again to become in the spirit. Do you know that the blasphemy of that doctrine? That a man in the flesh does something fleshy in order to become spirit. That's absurd. The Bible says that a man in the flesh hates the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's foolishness to him. He cannot understand it. He doesn't want to know it. 1 Corinthians 2.14 A man that's in the flesh doesn't even have the ability to see the kingdom of God. Jesus said, except a man be born again... He cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, 3. You've got to be born again first. He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Well, do you know what Billy Graham would have told Jesus? Well, keep preaching. Because they just might believe it and become of God. That is impossible in the Bible. Listen, there's one simple way to know that Billy Graham is wrong. One simple way. The world accepts him. True. There's never been a preacher of the gospel in the history of the world that the world has accepted, that taught the truth. The fact that all the presidents of this country want Billy Graham, the Pope of Rome wants Billy Graham, and every other ecumenical leader wants Billy Graham is proof enough without going any further that he does not preach the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is impossible. Men that preach the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ have their heads cut off, are burned at the stake, or are utterly ridiculed as nutcases. It's always been that way. It was that way with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was a pretty good preacher. And he never took any money. And he healed all diseases and cast out devils. But he was mistreated by the world. The difficulty of this is because 
there's so many other subjects that it leads into that I've taught you before and that you have to remember. All I want to do tonight is look at that little exchange between the jailer and Paul and Silas and have us put it in its proper place. Remember, when we read the Bible, we find that we are saved in five phases of salvation. There are five steps that God reveals very clearly in the Word of God about our salvation. Go over them with me. This should be automatic thinking when you're reading the Word of God. This is called rightly dividing the Word of Truth. Right. If you don't divide it up, that means if you have a word over here and you have a word over here, they always mean the same thing. You're a fool in the Word of God. Right. Paul told Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed. We do not want to be ashamed in our doctrine. We do not want to be disapproved by God in our doctrine. And so we've got to rightly divide the word of truth. So when we see a word over here, and a word over here, and they're saying opposing things, then we want to find out what sense we're supposed to understand both of them. In order to fit the whole message of all the verses of our King James Bibles. Right. The first phase of salvation took place in eternity. God chose his elect in Christ Jesus before the world began. Ephesians chapter 1. He has saved us according to his purpose that was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. 2 Timothy 1.9 Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another vessel unto dishonor? Romans chapter 9 verses 16 through 24. The first phase of salvation is the eternal phase because it took place in eternity, the Bible tells us, before the world began. The Bible tells us that's when names were written in the book of life. Now, I grew up as a child singing a song. It was number 250 in inspiring hymns. If it's a number, I can remember it. Um, There's a new name written down in glory. There are no new names written down in glory. Amen. Amen. God wrote the names down of all of his elect before the world began, and I'm so thankful for that. As a boy, reading Revelation chapter 20 and seeing that the book of life was open and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire, Revelation 20.15, that is a scary verse. All my life I trembled before that verse because I was believing Arminian theology. Arminian theology is... My name wasn't in that book. I had to get it in the book. That God loved everyone as much as he did me. But most of them were going to go to hell. So his love wasn't worth much. Jesus Christ died for everyone and paid for all their sins. Yet they were going to have to pay for their own sins in hell themselves. Jesus Christ's death didn't mean very much. The Holy Spirit tried to convict everyone equally as much as he tried to convict me. And yet most people were never convicted. Well, how was I going to get my name in the book of life? You know what Arminian theology tells me? Make a decision for Jesus. It's not the love of God. It's not the death of Christ. And it's not the work of the Holy Spirit that gets your name in the book of life. It's your decision for Jesus. But you know what? I made that decision. I made that decision when I was three years old the first time. And my parents tell me about it. And I made it every time I got scared after that. I made it a whole lot of times. I wanted to make sure have you ever seen people get resaved? Well, I was getting resaved all the time I got scared by making another decision for Jesus. But when I would read Revelation 2015 
and it said, Whosoever was not found written in the book of life, I'd get scared again because I knew this. I knew that the great God of heaven that I could read about in the Bible, I had done nothing worthy of him. This is the way I put it in my little mind. I had done nothing worthy for him to bend over in his throne and write my name in the book of life. I knew there wasn't a new name written down in glory. Because there wasn't. The Bible tells us that the names are written there from the foundation of the world. And he's loved us with an everlasting love. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. Amen. It is amazing how much they corrupt the word of God. Right. They say God loves everyone equally and indiscriminately. And yet most of the people he loves ends up separated from him in hell. Would you explain that to me, please? When it says nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right. That's impossible. The first phase of salvation, God chose us in Christ before the world began. It's called the eternal phase of salvation. It's what God did in eternity. The simple word in the Bible is it's election. Then there is the legal phase of salvation. God choosing to save sinners has to pay for them some way because God is fair and just and holy. And how does he pay for sin in order to save his elect? By sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross. And so a legal transaction was paid at the cross of Calvary, and that is called justification. We were justified at the cross of Calvary. We were just in the sight of God when Jesus said, it is finished. The legal payment was finished. He had perfected forever them that had been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Do you know what he said about his own life and his own purpose? He said, I came, I didn't come down from heaven to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. There Jesus loses most of whom he died for. Our Lord Jesus Christ did not lose a single one. Everyone that he died for is certainly saved because he said he wouldn't lose a single one. That's the legal phase of salvation. And it took place before you or I were even born. The third phase of salvation is the vital phase. When there's an accident and the paramedics arrive, they check those that were in the accident for vital signs. Vital means life-related. Now, see, that word's I made up. It's not, I can't find the word vital in the Bible. I've looked for it because I wanted it because I made Vital phase of salvation is like the Trinity. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but we understand that God is one God in three persons because 1 John 5, 7 tells us that. But the vital phase of salvation is when God, who chose us for eternal life in Christ before the world began, paid for it in Jesus Christ at the cross of Calvary, then changes our nature. That's when we're born again. We only have an old man, the flesh, and then we're given a new man. And it's called regeneration. It's called being born again. It's called being quickened. It's called being raised from the dead. It's called the first resurrection, Revelation 26, 20 and verse 6. That's the vital phase of salvation where God's purpose from eternity, paid for by Christ on the cross, is given to each of us individually when we're made the sons of God with a nature inside of us that is like God. My new man is like God in holiness and righteousness. It never sins. It always wants to do the will of God. It loves every word of God. And when did I get that? When I was regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. What does the Bible say about that great transaction? It says the wind bloweth where it listeth. That means the wind blows wherever it wants to. 
You can't, and thou canst not tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Every single person is born of the Spirit, is born by the Spirit of God just like the wind blows. You can't tell where the wind's coming from or where it's going. It's by the choice of God. And we're born again. When was John the Baptist born again? In his mother's womb. How do we know that? The Bible tells us so. That's a good answer. The Bible tells us so. Why? Because he was full of the Holy Ghost in his mother's womb. He was leaping for joy in the presence of the Son of God when he was unborn. And they want to kill unborn children. John the Baptist was already full of the Holy Ghost, was already born of God, was already a child of God, and already had with him that new man that in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was leaping for joy in Elizabeth's belly because he loved the Son of God already. He knew he had one purpose for his existence. Do you know that man had the simplest life of any man that ever lived? To point out the Lord Jesus Christ, his younger cousin to the Jewish nation. That's the vital phase of salvation. So God chose us in Christ before the world began. It's called election. Jesus Christ paid for our sins and died for us on the cross and justified us by rising from the dead and sitting down at the right hand of God. It's called justification. It's the legal phase of salvation. Then we're born again with the power of the Holy Spirit. It's called vital salvation because we're given a new vitality. We're given new life in our new man. Cornelius. Was Cornelius chosen by God before the world began? Was he justified by Christ on the cross? Even while he was just serving away in the Italian band of the Roman army? Was he born again with the power of the Holy Spirit? Is that what caused him to pray to God always? To give alms to the people and to have those prayers and alms accepted by God? And is that what caused him to be a God-fearer? When the Bible tells us there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's our condition by nature. What made the difference in Cornelius? Because as soon as we open Acts chapter 10 and we read about this centurion of the Italian band, he already fears God. He's already born again. He had to be. There isn't a doubt about it. There's no way that he could fear God. There is no natural man that fears God. And not only did this man fear God, he prayed to God always with his house. And he gave alms to the people, and God accepted those prayers and alms, and God does not accept the prayers of the wicked. He only accepts the prayers of the righteous. And, you know, I preached that whole message to you a few months ago about Cornelius. It's on the website. You can even listen to it on the website in MP3 format if you need to hear it again. We've got a man named Cornelius who was chosen before the world began, saved by Jesus Christ and born again. He's praying to God always, but he doesn't know. He knows that death is taking all of his relatives. He doesn't know what the deliverance is from death. He, he feels guilty for his sins because he's got an old man and a new man. The new man tells him that he's a sinner. And so he's praying to God always, and an angel appears to him and says, You need a man named Peter. He will tell you what you ought to do. Amen. Amen. And what did Peter come, you know, as soon as Peter saw Cornelius, hmm, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Amen. Here I am a Jew, and I'm standing in a house of Gentiles. 
I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Cornelius was already accepted with God, was already a worker of righteousness, and already feared him. But he had no understanding of the truth of the gospel. And so Peter preached to him Jesus. Peter preached to him Cornelius. Death that you know is coming. I want to tell you something. I represent Jesus of Nazareth, who I walked with and preached with for three and a half years. He was crucified by your very own authorities in Jerusalem. But he rose from the dead after three days and three nights in the grave. And he ascended up to heaven 40 days later. I was a witness. I ate and I drank with him. And the Bible says that if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he was given for the redemption of all your sins. And if you will lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the Savior provided by God for your sins. And you ought to be baptized in his name and live a holy life in his name. And you shall be saved in that day when he shall be the judge of, the hu- of all the human, human race and of angels as well. And, and, you know, while Peter was preaching, Cornelius and his family started speaking in tongues to give Peter the encouragement to baptize Gentiles. And that's Acts chapter 10, 11, part of 11 and part of 15, where we read about the conversion of Cornelius. And see, that whole chapter is given to us about one man for us to understand that God chose, Jesus Christ died, the Holy Spirit had regenerated, but Cornelius didn't know anything about pleasing God. And what was one thing he needed to do to please God? What is the answer of a good conscience toward God? It's baptism. Baptism is not some little rite. It's an important part of the New Testament church. When people hear the gospel, they are to believe it and they are to be baptized because baptism is a confession to God of a good conscience. That good conscience is made good by hearing the gospel that my sins have been paid for. And I want to show God how they were paid for and how that I'm going to live a new life for Him. Right. And I've been over all that about baptism. But see, it all fits the purpose here because, do you know what happened sometime between midnight and 8 o'clock in the morning in Philippi of Macedonia in 51 A.D.? The jailer was baptized with his household. Right. Cornelius wouldn't have thought of baptism in a hundred years. Yep. And so he needed a preacher to tell him about baptism. And he needed a preacher to tell him about Jesus Christ. He needed a preacher to tell him all the mysteries of the gospel that we read about tonight in 1 Timothy 3.16. God was manifest in the flesh. Cornelius, I want to tell you a secret. A few years ago in Jerusalem, God was manifest in the flesh. We witnessed it. He was justified by the Spirit. He rose from the dead. We saw his miracles for three and a half years. We have his miracle power because he gave it to us. Watch this. You know, when you read, when you read, read the book of Acts, watch this. How powerful was Peter in performing miracles by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ? Shadow. Men wanted to get in his shadow. You know, I haven't seen Benny Hinn do that one yet. Nope. You won't. But when Peter walked down the street, if a crippled man was laying on the sidewalk and got in his shadow, he was healed. Now, when a dumb fisherman can heal someone with his shadow, and he testifies facts about the Jesus of Nazareth, Cornelius believed, and he was baptized with all of his house. That's conversion. Cornelius was converted from ignorance 
to understanding of the gospel. Converted from Romanism and the confusion in his mind, he must have been part Roman and part Jew in, in religious thinking right. because he feared God. He was stationed among the Jews, so he had heard about Jehovah. And there was within his heart a new man that feared only Jehovah and prayed to Jehovah. But his background was Roman. But Peter came along and converted him to a full knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the Christian religion and of all that we owe the Lord Jesus Christ to please him. God chose us by election before the world began. Christ justified us by his death at the cross. The Holy Spirit regenerates us in time. God sends preachers to preach the gospel to us for us to believe and be converted and to obey him with sanctified, holy lives. Is there another phase of salvation left? When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more, we sang tonight. Glorification in heaven is the fifth phase of salvation. And it's what we're all waiting for. It's a salvation Paul said he didn't have yet. And neither do we. But it's one we want when we'll be glorified and taken to heaven to be with our Lord Jesus Christ. What must I do to be saved? What in the world did the jailer mean by what must I do to be saved? You know, some people jump into that passage and think that the jailer said, what do I need to do in order to be born again? The jailer didn't know what it meant to be born again. He was a Roman jailer. The man was so mixed up in his ideas that one minute earlier he had pulled his sword out and was going to commit Harry Carey. Now, does that sound like a man who understands being born again? No. A man that understands being born again wouldn't commit suicide before he could get born again. Come on! What in the world did he mean by what must I do to be saved? Let me, let me throw out some ideas to you. Because see, the Bible doesn't tell us. So do you know what? When the Bible doesn't tell us, and Luke is just telling Theophilus of how the church got started in Philippi, Luke in Acts 16 is not giving us a theological lesson. Luke is writing a letter to a man named Theophilus of how the apostles started churches. And he wants Theophilus to know that in the city of Philippi, the jailer was converted under extraordinary circumstances in the middle of the night. That is what Acts 16 is there for. We are to understand it in the rest of the life of the New Testament. What did he mean? What must I do to be saved? What did the damsel possessed with the devil say in the streets of Philippi? These men are the servants of the Most High God and show unto us the way of salvation. Do you think that that might have been brought up at at their trial when they were beaten and then turned over to the jailer? Do you think he might have heard that or seen that on the record? That uh, we have this anecdotal evidence that... The damsel possessed by the spirit that's been a sorceress in our city testified that these men show unto us the way of salvation. Okay? Had he heard Paul and Silas reason of judgment to come? Mm -hmm. Were Paul and Silas known to reason of judgment to come? Did he do that with Governor Felix on one occasion? When the Apostle Paul reasoned of judgment to come, what did men do? They trembled. When I have a convenient season, I'll hear you again. A mistake on the part of Governor Felix. Had the jailer been frightened by God's power in opening the prison but saving the prisoners? Oh, yes. 
Would that, would that get your attention? Amen. If there was an earthquake that just took the prison and it opened the doors of the prison without knocking down the walls and crushing the prisoners, but the prisoners didn't run away, would that get your attention? Amen. <laughs> had he heard Paul and Silas reason about Rome's superstitions as Paul had reasoned at Mars Hill with the Greeks? You know, when Paul was at Mars Hill and he went up and reasoned with the Greek philosophers, he reasoned with them about how foolish their religion was and that Jesus of Nazareth had been appointed by God to be their judge. And to prove that, God had raised him from the dead. Do you think that maybe the jailer had heard some of those kind of discussions? Had the jailer been gripped by the fact that two men, beaten, uncondemned, stripped naked in the streets of Philippi, were down in the inner prison, not having had their wounds treated, their feet in stocks, and they were praising God and singing. Do you think that would kind of unnerve you? Now, what if all those things happened at once? The Bible doesn't tell us what he meant by the word salvation. Paul and Silas answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. We know what the rest of the New Testament teaches, and so we fit that transaction into what we know from the rest of the New Testament. When the Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, believe is an imperative, present tense verb with a future salvation conditioned upon your present action. Did did the jailer need to believe in order to be elected? Not a chance. That was done before the world began. It's never changed. Did the jailer need to believe in order for Christ to die for his sins on the cross? Uh Not a chance, because Jesus died for the same ones that God had given to him before the world began. Did the jailer need to believe in order to be born again? No. The jailer's already born again. Can't you tell? Can't you tell? He didn't kill himself. That's what a pagan Roman would have done. And he came in and he fell down before prisoners and called them sir and asked to be saved. Men not born again do not do any of those things. That's right. They kill themselves. They don't fall down and address prisoners that were apostles of Jesus Christ as sirs and ask about salvation. So they didn't say to him, believe and get born again. That's not what they meant. He was already born again. The apostles wouldn't contradict themselves. Right. Okay, we've got three phases of salvation that that God's responsible for in our lives, but there's a couple left. (coughs) What must I do to be saved? Since the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what he meant by those words, we look at the rest of the New Testament. Is there a salvation that comes to men by believing the gospel? Yes. It's conversion. It's a salvation from ignorance. It's a salvation from confusion. It's a salvation from error. It's a salvation from lies. It's a salvation from trusting your own righteousness instead of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Right. Look at Romans 10. I don't want to use Romans 10. Next. John chapter 5. John chapter 5. John chapter 5. I want to show you where belief fits in, and this is how we have to study the Bible. Do you know what's hard about a subject like this? Most men don't want to study the Bible. They don't have the time for it. They weren't trained to do it, and so they don't. 
And so it looks like the man of God is having to work harder than using sound bites. See, if you go hear an Arminian preacher, he'll just pull a sound bite out of the Bible and presume on it. Right. But to actually study the Bible, it's called a work. Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Workmen don't use sound bites. They make every verse in the Bible fit. Right. The second thing is, it's a lot harder to listen to. Sound bites are a lot prettier. Stories about my childhood, when I was in a motorcycle gang, smoking dope, and how the Lord Jesus Christ saved me. I wasn't in either of those two situations. <laughs> but, you know, that's always more interesting. Always. Oh, I loved it when I'd hear something like that as a child. Man, I could go home and repeat every story he told. If, you, if you'd ask me what text did he use, I don't know. So I don't, I don't tell stories. I don't have any to tell. I'm, I'm very boring. It's just the Word of God. It's all I've got to give you. Amen. It's all I've got. John 5. Look at this verse. Lord, I love your Word, and I love Amen. every word of it. I want to show you three phases of salvation in one verse and where belief fits into them. John 5, 24. Jesus said, is it in the red writing in your Bibles? Amen. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word, what verb tense is heareth? Present. And believeth on him that sent me. What verb tense is believeth? Present. Hath everlasting life. Be careful. That's present. It means to be in possession of something. If you have it, then you're in possession of something. Hath everlasting life and shall not, what tense is shall, future, shall not come into condemnation, but is past, what tense is that? The perfect tense, from death unto life. Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Right. In one verse. Amen. Now look at where the belief fits in. It says the perfect tense is, is something that comes before the present tense. Is passed is the passive voice of to pass. And it's in the perfect tense, meaning it happens before the present it's called the perfect tense. It's English. It's something we should have learned in the third grade. You may have learned it, but you probably forgot it. Or it may have been the sixth grade or the eighth grade. Now look at this. Believe, hearing and believing are present tense. The verb tenses line up this way. Is passed from death into life. That is being born again. A man that hears and believes is passed. Not shall be passed. Not is passing. But is passed. From death into life. So he's born again first, and then he hears, and then he believes. And when he hears and believes, he is in possession of eternal life. You show me a man that hears and believes the gospel, that man is in possession of eternal life, and shall not come into future condemnation when we stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. In one verse. It tells us what the jailer and Paul and Silas meant, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. They were talking about that final phase of salvation called glorification. And they could also have been including the salvation that we're going to turn to now. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. 
See, there's two salvations that come after believing. First of all, you're saved from ignorance. Then you're saved because a believer can know if he lives a life that, that follows his faith, he can know that in that great day he'll be saved. Oh, but there's so much more to be said. Is belief enough? No. When men believed on Jesus Christ, Jesus, John, 8, chapter 20, John chapter 8, verse 29, when men believed on him, Jesus Christ said to them, Continue in my word, and ye shall be my disciples indeed. He knew they weren't real believers. Right. Jesus said, Not everyone that saith, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Amen. Our salvation is entirely dependent upon God's will to choose us in Christ, send Christ to die for us, and the Holy Spirit to regenerate us. The way we know that our names are in the book of life and that God chose us, Christ died for us, and the Spirit regenerated us is to believe to be baptized, and then to add to our belief and our baptism the works that the New Testament teaches. And the more of those works you have, the more assurance you can have in your heart. You don't add to your name in the book of life. Right. See, the Armenian comes along and says, well, you make a decision. You don't want to go to hell. Do you want to go to heaven? Then make a decision for Jesus. As soon as you do, they pull out their pen and write in the flyleaf of your Bible, February 20th, 2005, you invited Jesus into your heart. Heaven is sure for you. You can never be lost. Go ahead and live any way you want. It doesn't matter because you made this decision for Jesus. That is what is taught today in most churches. That's what I was raised in. That's what I went to Bob Jones University and heard. But that is not the truth of the New Testament. Amen. The truth of the New Testament is if you want to make your calling and election sure, you better add to your faith virtue and to, and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge patience and to patience, temperance, and to temperance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. And if ye do these things, and I'm quoting Peter, if ye do these things, ye shall never fall, but an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. James would say, faith without works is dead and is no different than a devil's faith. The devils believe that there is one God. They're monotheists. They know that the polytheists of the Arabians and the Romans and the Greeks are wrong. And they tremble at their knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they worshipped him when he, when he was on earth because they know he is their Lord. They will confess that Jesus is Lord. And you're going to be tossed into hell. There are the five phases of salvation. We come to Romans chapter 10. Brother, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Okay. Romans, cha Romans chapter 9 tells us that there's two Israels. There's national Israel and there's spiritual Israel. Look at Romans 9, 6. Not as though the word of God hath taken an effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. I wonder what Israel that the Apostle Paul is praying for when there's an Israel of God, there's an Israel of the devil. They are not all Israel which are of Israel. One Israel is a spiritual Israel, one Israel is a fleshly Israel. He was praying for the spiritual Israel. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for spiritual Israel is. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for elect Israel is. That they might be saved. 
For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. And so he tells us exactly what that verse means. But you know, I've seen that verse strung on banners all over the place. They think that that verse means that Paul wanted to help men get born again. Paul never helped anyone get born again. Right. God the Holy Spirit regenerates us. Amen. We're dead in trespasses and sin, and God quickens us with new life by saying, Live, just as surely as he said, Lazarus, come forth, and men are born again. Paul never participated in that activity. What he participated in was right here. He saw Israel after God that was ignorant of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He says, I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. As soon as a man hears the message of Jesus Christ paying for all my sins, no longer do you want to try to earn your way of righteousness by keeping the law of Moses. Paul saw Israel, spiritual elect Israel, true Israel, an Israel he could pray for. And he saw them ignorantly confused about the law of Moses. And he prayed for them that they might be saved from thinking they could establish their own righteousness because he had a message for them. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law perfectly for you already. And they needed to be saved from that ignorance because as soon as you hear that message, and if you believe it, do you know what you quit doing? Trying to establish your own righteousness. Do you know what you start doing? Thanking God for giving you His righteousness. Now that is a big transformation, and it is a salvation. It's a salvation from trusting yourself to trusting Christ. But it doesn't happen until you've already been elected, justified, and born again. Only a born-again man would ever believe that message. And so Paul wanted to save these deluded, ignorant, confused Jews to a proper understanding of Jesus Christ having fulfilled the law for them. Verse 9, Romans 10, 9, That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Well, what salvation is that? If thou shalt confess, and if thou shalt believe, thou shalt be saved. That's final glorification. Paul is shifting forward from the knowledge aspect to the fact that if you will lay your trust in Jesus Christ, you can know, you can reach out and lay hold of eternal life because God will give it to you in the great day of judgment. Because believers shall be saved. Verse 10, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. A man that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ shall not come into condemnation. John 5, 24, Romans 10, 13. It doesn't matter which one you use. But you know what? We've learned more than that. We've learned that it's not enough to call the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we're to add works, good works. Not to earn our way to heaven, but to lay hold of that salvation for ourselves. Do you know that verse we came upon this morning in Philippians chapter 2? Here's this great church, the best church in the New Testament, the church at Philippi. Paul wrote them, and he said, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Right. Is that election? Justification? Regeneration? Final glorification? If you want to know that your name is in the book of life and that you will be saved in that day, you should be working out your salvation with fear and trembling every day of your life. 
God worked it in, Philippians 2.13. You are to work it out, Philippians 2.12. And how do you work out that salvation God put in you? By keeping his commandments. By believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Being baptized and keeping everything the New Testament asks of us. Now see, we have the, the, the truth of the gospel is wonderful. Amen. It's unconditional salvation by the grace of God, and yet it gives us the highest motivation to live holy lives. Right. Arminians say, make a decision for Jesus. You're on your way to heaven. Nice seeing you. I'm going to the next one. And see, they don't care how you live. Because they have this little saying, once saved, always saved. You can't find it in the Bible, but it's once saved, always saved, and a momentary decision. See, there's no motive to live a holy life. The truth of the gospel is this. God saves us by his grace, and he saved a number chosen in Christ before the world began. But the only way they can know that they are God's elect and that they're going to have that salvation is to have lives filled with righteousness that show the character of the sons of God. That's the only way. What must I do to be saved? We're not told what the jailer had in mind. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. By looking at the rest of the New Testament, we knew that if, we know that if he believed, he would be saved from the confusion, ignorance, darkness of his confused state of mind, the knowledge of the truth as it is in Christ Jesus, and that by believing he could lay hold on eternal life for the great day of judgment when he would be glorified. Right. Paul wrote Timothy. I know I use this passage so much, but you know, I never heard it. I didn't hear it when I was hearing a lot of the Bible about salvation. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.12, lay hold on eternal life. Now, wait a minute. He's already ordained Timothy. But why is he telling Timothy to lay hold on eternal life? Don't you think Timothy's already made a decision for Jesus and once saved, always saved? Why did Paul have to write him that? I speak as a fool. Lay hold on eternal life. The same reason that the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, I use all means that I might by all means be in the resurrection of the great day. Philippians chapter 3, 8 through 11. The Apostle Paul lived a holy and righteous life in order to lay hold and assure himself of his eternal life. Till the day he died. The truth of the gospel is that God saves us, but the only way we can know that we are his elect is to make our calling and election sure by living holy lives. It is the greatest combination of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility that could ever be put together. First Timothy 6 goes on and comes to chapter, verse 17, where Paul told Timothy, Charge them that are rich in this world not to trust in uncertain riches, but to trust in the living God that giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they be ready to distribute their money, willing to communicate it, that they may lay hold on eternal life and lay up a good foundation against the time to come. Is, is that a po- You know, I give you that verse a number of times because that is a powerful text. Amen. What is that text teaching? That text is saying that if you want a good foundation against the day of judgment... And if you want to lay hold on eternal life and make it sure to yourself, if you're rich, you ought to be ready to distribute your money to the poor Christians, to poor saints. 
But now, see, that just doesn't fit with make a decision for Jesus and once saved, always saved. Because there is no such thing taught in the Bible. A man that hears believes. A man that believes is baptized. A man that is baptized is to keep the commandments of God and obey the gospel. Jesus told his apostles, Go ye into all the world and teach all nations. Teach them what? Jesus is the Son of God and rose from the dead. And he's the only salvation from sin that there is in the universe. Number two, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Number three, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Right. We do not cut that off after belief. We do not cut it off after baptism. We put those three together because it's only by doing all three that you can lay hold on eternal life. And that is what Paul did that night with the Philippian jailer. Have you read the rest of the chapter? Mm-hmm. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The jailer took him home. He and his household believed on Jesus Christ. Paul and Silas baptized them, and they taught them the word of the Lord until morning time when the magistrate said they could leave, fulfilling the word of God perfectly. They, the Philippian jailer was not born again by believing on Jesus. He was saved from the confusion of a deluded man who did not know the truth of the gospel, and he laid hold on eternal life by believing and being baptized. Right. Mark sixteen sixteen, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Do you think you can figure that one out? He that believeth and is baptized. Oh, Arminians just go crazy with that one. Because see, if they really admitted that the verse is true, they would have to join the church of Christ that teaches you've got to be baptized in order to be saved. Because it says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But see, we totally believe that. If you believe and are baptized... And you follow that baptism with the works of the New Testament. You can lay hold on eternal life. And in the great day of judgment, you shall be saved because you have given the evidence of having your name in the book of life. That's the truth of the gospel. That's how predestination fits with faith. That's where where Acts 16 fits in with God choosing us in Christ before the world began. Eternal life is by the unconditional grace of God. But the only way we can know that we're in that number is by believing, being baptized, and keeping the commandments of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. I thank you for your kind attention this day. I hope you'll remember what we covered this morning in Philippians chapter 2, that he has called us to be harmless and blameless, without rebuke, the sons of God, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. We want to shine as lights in the world by living holy lives before the world. May God grant us that blessed privilege.